26. Our 26th study in Ephesians tonight will close the fifth chapter. Uh, I know that we could have closed it last week because we were on marriage. In fact, the lesson was titled Marriage. Um, of course, the fifth chapter ends with this big, long polemic on marriage, and Paul's really, really not giving a marriage seminar, but he's trying to show Christ. But I just felt like I wanted to do one more at the end of this chapter to deal with the two words, one flesh, because all of our lives, we've all heard it quoted that when someone gets married, the man and the woman leave their father and their mother. The man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the scripture we're going to see tonight. It's in Ephesians 5, and it's a quote from Genesis 2. We're going to read both of them. However, how we've taught that and, and, and presented that is, is that when you get married, you two people become one person, and we leave it at that. And I've often thought without real counseling, like walking people through that, can you imagine if this is the first time you heard that, what are all the other spiritual or physical or mental or financial implications of being one flesh. I mean, the state doesn't see you as one person. Uh, you both maintain two social security numbers. Um, you have two different driver's license uh, for purposes of taxes. They tax both of your incomes. Um, they, no other institution in the world would say that these two people have become one person. And yet we all shake our head and go, yep, yep, one person. Um, one person gets cancer, the other one doesn't. One person gets their leg cut off, the other one doesn't get their leg cut off. And yet the, the text says, They'll become one flesh. One flesh. And that's the word he uses. It's not some code word for spirit or soul. It's this. And you know it's not true. I mean, you know that two people don't literally become one person when they get married. Now, I, I, with all that said, I don't, I don't think it's a terrible thing to say that you're united and that you're hearts are intertwined and that you have the same goals and the same, and you should, and you should be growing closer together, certainly not farther apart. Um, but we're trying to stay true to the context of scripture when we study it. And so while this is one of those moments where I think it's okay for you to nod your head and agree when someone says something, but to know that there's probably more information there, but that you don't have to get into it. So when someone says, you all oh, went to my cousin's wedding, it's so beautiful, and the preacher said, you become one flesh, and I thought, how wonderful that is. And the truth is, is that they didn't become one flesh. There's still two fleshes up there. Um, but you don't have to get into an argument. But it would be nice to know what it means. Before we read anything, I will tell you this. Paul admits in Ephesians chapter 5 that he doesn't understand this phrase. And that's why I wanted to title it this. Paul will admit that he doesn't really get this. He doesn't say you can't get it. He admits that we've never really got it. And he tries to come to a conclusion, one that I think lands really well and has, should be our interpretation as far as I'm concerned of what it means to be one flesh. But unfortunately, because we think Ephesians 5 is about husbands and wives, we miss Paul's point. And so if we could get away from marriage seminar talk in Ephesians 5 and get back to Christ and his church talk, we could land on one flesh in a much better way than the way we have, which is completely confusing because, again, one person gets a tumor, the other person doesn't get a tumor. They are not one flesh. They may be one, you can call them one soul, one spirit, even that's arguable. But not one flesh. So what is it? So to do this right, I just want to pick up where we left off last week. You know me, I don't do 30 minutes of rehash. So 
watch marriage if you missed it. It's got some good stuff. Great stuff about submission. Great stuff about the head. Great stuff about the body. Great stuff about obey, what that means versus what it doesn't. And so um, enough of that. Let's dig in. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember, I told you last one of the last things I said last week was it was really transformative to tell men to love their wives because they didn't have any impetus to love their wives. They don't need to love their wives. Like, they don't get any more out of the relationship from loving their wives. They subjugate them in every way. Uh, and if they're not getting what they want, even let's say sexually from their wives, they got slaves. We're in the Greco-Roman world, and that's why, that's a big reason they exist. So a guy goes, well, I don't want to love my wife. <laughs> love my wife? She's eating in my house. She's got a roof over her head. Why love her? So when Paul tells the husbands of love, and he's trying to translate the love of Christ from the church, this chapter gets way misused in regards to how it talks to women. It really has a lot more to say to men. A lot more to, in, within its culture, a lot more to say to men. And so just always have that in the back of your mind when you read that, that, that we are in a totally different society, that they don't see things the same way. So to say this to husbands was a big deal. Imagine Christian husbands hearing this at the church at Ephesus. They've come out of paganism. They're, they've accepted Christ. They're a minority, by the way, men in the early church. Very small minority. And so they're coming to Christ, and now they're being challenged to actually love their wives as you love your own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. That's path-breaking. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So I wanted to deal first and foremost with what I think is a sort of an unspoken problem with this text. Um, and by unspoken, I've just never heard anybody else deal with it. Um, that doesn't mean no one has, but I ain't heard it. Um, and that is, husbands ought to love their wives. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. So here, here's my first thought. I, I, no, I don't hear anybody talk about this, but I think the truth is, is that we actually struggle in our modern society to love our own bodies. So when you read Ephesians 5 and Paul goes, husbands, you ought to love your wives the way you love your own bodies, you're in a culture where people didn't take selfies, never saw themselves on a screen, didn't see themselves in a mirror, didn't have scales, didn't know how tall they were, didn't go get tailored clothing, um, may have never gotten a formal haircut a day in their lives, they didn't tan, they didn't lift weights, they didn't think about protein. You get my point. They didn't take selfies. They didn't have cameras or video. We're in a culture where we're inundated with the visual, okay? This isn't, a, this isn't a diatribe against technology. You don't, it's always useless to argue against things moving forward because they aren't ever going to move backwards. Once something gets released, boom, that's the world. That's Pandora's box myth. Once it's open, you don't shove stuff back in. So we are what we are. Okay, culture's not going backwards. We're not just going to sort of get rid of all of this stuff. But we do have to learn to deal with it. I do think we're having a lot of stuff that we're, we're having to deal with that we weren't created to deal with. I think we got way too much information. I think we're hearing things that we can't process. We're being made to feel bad that we don't feel bad. Like you, somebody tells you something, you don't cry enough. They go, well, what's wrong with you? You go, how can I get that emotional about stuff I don't know and I don't see and I don't touch and I got my own stuff. So we're dealing with that all the time. But we're in a culture where 
we actually don't know what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5 when he goes, love your wives as you love your own bodies. And you would never hurt it. You would never abuse it. You would never... But let's just say, if we put it in our culture, then the way we should love our spouse would be to the level of concern we have with our own bodies in a society obsessed with its own body. Like to the point that no generation before us has been obsessed with their own body. I don't think Paul meant that. He could not have imagined a group of people as obsessed with themselves as we are. Strangely, his command works. Out of context, in our context, it still works. You go, you guys know how obsessed you are with the way you look? What if you were that obsessed with loving the person in your life? And again, I'm not claiming Paul means that because there's no way he could have imagined how self-observant we are. But it still works. It still works to go, what if with as much as you think about this thing, you put some of that attention into the things in your life that mattered. And I know that sounds a message of smacks of condemnation. Like you don't feel, you know, loving enough. But let's push aside our need to be gratified and just say that loving the one that we're with costs us more than, or it should cost us more than maybe or it should at least be on par with the time and the attention we put in our own body in a culture that puts a lot of time and attention in its own body. And so this has always been one to me that was like, Paul could not have known how far off he's going to be in our culture with the way people think of themselves. But then the more I thought about that, the more it hit me that, well, even when he is that far off, the principle still applies that we love as we loved our own bodies. That's one thought there. And then I had another thought, which was, Christian culture in Paul's day did not embrace divorce because they're fresh off the heels of Jesus saying to them, listen, Moses only let you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And so however we can translate that in our culture, and we've worked, we worked on that with the Sermon on the Mount because I think there's some stuff going on there that don't always meet the eye, at least meet our ear, let's say it that way. But we can't deny that Christian culture did not embrace divorce. First century church was not like, hey, you know, you come to Christ, just divorce your wife, go get a new one. Paul even says in Corinthians, if you're with, even if you're with an unbeliever, he goes, if you can stay with them, don't leave them. Because you might say, you save their soul by being with them. So it was off the table. With that in mind, Paul, knowing they don't embrace divorce, appeals to that mentality. That idea that the husband doesn't, under Christ, under Judaism, husband will leave his wife. Here was Christianity elevating itself morally above Moses. Grace circles, we don't talk about this enough. Christianity elevates itself above Moses morally. Because Moses gives you a writ to divorce. Early church gave you none. So your early church doesn't have this like way out to go, you can, you, can, you can absolve a Christian marriage. With that in mind, Paul appeals to the idea that you can't divorce by showing Christ is your husband. If you can't divorce and Christ is your husband, you don't have to worry about Christ divorcing you. So he's playing into his culture in Ephesians 5, while at the same time pushing against it. A bunch of husbands don't love their wives. You need to. But you're in a culture where you aren't permitted to divorce because what if you saw Christ as the husband, knowing that a Christian husband doesn't leave his wife, how could you ever be afraid he's going to leave you? Again, this one doesn't work as well today because we are not as... We don't hold marriage 
for whatever it's worth in the same regard from a Christian perspective, even that the first century did. And therefore, because it is culturally convenient to divorce, and I'm not condemning people that have, you have your reasons. Um, I wouldn't stay with somebody that's violent either. So I want to throw that out. And I think that there's the heart of God is not violence. So you take that up with the Lord. But in a culture that is sort of blase about it, it's hard to sell people on the fact that God won't divorce them. Because, you know, it's kind of easy to get one. But Paul's not writing in our culture. So once again, this is one of those where you have to put yourself back in Paul's mentality to go, these people accept the fact that there's no divorce. What if I could convince them that Christ is their husband? Well, then they wouldn't have to worry about him leaving them because he doesn't divorce his wife. Christian man doesn't divorce his wife. Christ is the husband. You're the bride. Don't worry. He's not going to leave you. Oh, also, by the way, if I'm telling husbands to love their wives, guess what God thinks about you? Guess how Christ feels about you. All this stuff is so that Paul can convince the church they are loved. Convince the church they are secure. He's not running out on them. They don't have to worry about him leaving because he found someone prettier or because he's just not happy or because he doesn't like the way they're living. All of the reasons why men were leaving their wives. And Paul goes, you've got a better husband and he's not walking out on you. You're not always going to be pretty and you're not always going to live right and you're not always going to make him happy, but he's not going anywhere. And if you can convince people of that, and we got a tough challenge, man. I, I, I know why we don't preach Ephesians 5 as an as a allegory of Christ loving his church because we have a faulty view of marriage a lot of times. So it's difficult to then pitch Jesus as the great example of marriage when we have such terrible examples of them. And, and I do think it's something that we ought to be actively working on as the people of God. It ought to be the thing that we invest our lives in. I mean, it's how I feel. If you're going to be married, invest your life into making that marriage work. If you're going to be married, invest your life into the person you're married with. You don't have to be one flesh. You're not, which we're finding out, but you still are serving the same God. And so mutual love in that respect. If we have a high view of marriage, we'll have a high view of how Christ feels about his church. Husbands had no societal reason to nourish, no societal reason to cherish their wives. This is totally sentimental. Paul really has to appeal to the love of Christ to get husbands to realize they ought to nourish and cherish their wives in a culture where they're not honored to do so. And they don't get anything out of it. This, it strikes me that religion, and that's, a, that's become a pejorative, I know. Let's say toxic religion. Because I, I really do think there's true religion, undefiled. To love the, and care for the widows and the fatherless and keep yourself unspotted from the world. And I do believe that we are in a religion, Christianity. We rallied around a singular thought, a risen Christ. That's a religion. Toxic religion, I should have said, presents God the same way. He has no reason to nourish and cherish. He's God. Why would he nourish and cherish you? He don't need to nourish and cherish you. He's God. He demands of you. He expects of you. Do it right or you're in trouble. And a lot of us come up under a form of toxic religion. And here's something that only recently really became real to me. This is why you can go in and preach this stuff to almost any churches, talk about toxic religion, and everybody will nod their head, whether they're Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, atheist. <laughs> they will nod their head because we're in the Western world. The American culture has its roots in Puritanism. Our entire society was built up. Outside, even outside of the church as we know it was built up on the idea of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God blesses people that work hard. God curses people that don't. If you live right, you'll get ahead. If you live wrong, 
you'll get crushed. And if God doesn't do it, we will. We are the arm of God. And we've, we've grown up under that so much that we all have a bit of toxic religion in our system. It's why every place nods when you hear it, even in pl- environments of the love of God. And people will go, yeah, I still think about God that way. Because it's really deep in our system that God has no reason to nourish you. God has no reason to cherish you. Why would he? Paul aims to change that if you believe in Christ. He wants to pitch Christ, not as opposite of God, but he wants to put God into Christ. And so we're not trying to present a dichotomy. I just put a message up a couple of weeks ago called um, It's Never God Versus Jesus, which was a message we did in Canada. It's one of those spontaneous sermons. We just got up and started talking. And, and I really wanted to lay the foundation of God. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God always will look like. We're not... We, we, we don't have a Jesus and a God that are doing this, you know, and the Jesus is in heaven calming dad down, showing his nail scars to the God, and God's I'm angry, and then Jesus goes, yeah, but they just prayed. Here's their brand new prayer. And he slides it over, and God goes, okay, and then slaps the gavel down. And then, well, we kind of had that. I mean, even if we don't really have that, we kind of have that. Like, he's super mad, and Jesus is a cool guy and a calm one, and he's nice and gentle, and Jesus is the expression of God's love, but God's the fury. But the truth is, is that Jesus is exactly what God looked like. Just everything else was our projections onto God. So when Jesus comes in going, we don't do that, we don't talk that way, here's how we love. He's saying, this is what my dad always looked like. I'm here to reveal my father. I'm not here to change my father. I'm not here, I'm here to change your mind about my father, but I'm not here to change my dad. And by the way, I'm not God 2.0. Jesus doesn't come and go, I'm, I'm the new God. Like we used to do things this way. I used to preach this. Even under grace, I used to preach this. God used to do it this way. And then came Jesus and God brought grace and God went, okay, now we're going to do it different. No, he's an unchangeable God. He was always trying to squeeze grace and mercy into the human family. We just constantly reject it for the desire for judgment. We want to be judged because we want other people to be judged. I talked to someone this week that goes, you know, my biggest problem with the idea that maybe every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is that I don't want them to. And this dude was being honest. And you know what? I said, I get it. I get it. Not that you don't want him to, but you want him to go through it first. You want him to go through some hell. Because how dare they get to their knee bow and their tongue confess and they live the way they lived here. Well, I don't know how he gets them there, but I want him to get them there. The better moments in my life, I want him to get them there. And the worst moments in my life, I want him to get lost in hell for a while. And God can't find them. And he's going, where? I don't know. They died? <laughs> we'll find them sometime. Let them burn. If they're as bad as you say they are, we can forget about them for a couple of millennium. Uh, but I think if we elevated our view of Christ, we'd elevate our view of marriage. Just back to the text. Ephesians 5.30. We are members of his body, his flesh, his bones. By the way, um, earliest Greek we have, it stops right here. No. 30 does. 31 stands on its own. 31 is a quote, by the way. He knows quote marks. But 30 actually stops right here in the original Greek. The of his flesh and of his bones is probably an interpolation from a later scribal edition. Um, We're members of his body. Of his flesh and of his bones. Um, I'll leave it for somebody smarter than me why somebody felt like maybe that needed to be on the backside of body. Maybe because we're going into this flesh passage. They thought we need. It's redundant, but it's also... 
If it's not there in the Greek, I don't know. I don't want to mess with it too much, so we'll leave it alone. We're members of his body, and then the quotes, which means Paul's quoting previously released text, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul doesn't give you any lead-in. He just quotes it. Here's your whole lead-in. We are members of his body, and then quote for this reason. It's not for this reason, quote, a man shall leave his... It's not Paul going, here's why a man shall leave. No, it's Paul quoting for this reason. Let me show you that from Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. See the word therefore? That's for this reason. That's a therefore. It's just translated out of Hebrew instead of Septuagint. All right. Adam said, this is right after Eve is pulled out of Adam's side. Now we're going to reverse engineer this tonight. This, this, I think, is what Paul's teaching. It's the reverse engineering of the creation story. Okay? It's a good, what we'll do is we'll walk it forward in Genesis, and then I think Paul walks it backward in Ephesians. So this kind of hits rewind. So watch. Adam says, this is now bone of my bones. Literally in the Hebrew, at last, that's the one. Because we're right on the backside of Adam having all the animals marched in front of him. God goes, pick a helper, and Adam's just naming animals, which has a bunch of multi-layered meanings. Is that the wisdom of heaven is inside of Adam. He's a participant in taking care of creation. He's actually involved in taking care of animals and tending the earth, which tells us something about our call. But none of, nothing beneath him can help him. This is also the evidence that a woman's not beneath a man, because everything beneath him couldn't help him. Plants couldn't help him. Animals couldn't help him. So God puts him to sleep reaches inside of his rib cage and pulls out a rib. And this is the f- one of the, f- not the first, because you, you don't have to get out of chapter one to find the Bible's not literal. But this is one of the literal moments. Anybody in here raised thinking that men had one fewer rib than women? Okay. That's an example right there of fundamentalist Christianity that completely ignores the medical record. Men do not have fewer ribs than women, but thousands of us heard it in church. Like as gospel truth, here's why you have one fewer rib, men, than women. They go, what? No, you don't. You don't have one. Where'd you get that? Genesis chapter two. Okay. So, but we'll get to why this is important in a moment, because this actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is a good interpretive lens for the Bible. A lot of things don't make a lot of sense to get to Jesus. Okay. So this doesn't make a lot of sense to get to Jesus. So God puts Adam asleep, reaches in, pulls out a rib, and fashions woman around man. Essentially, whereas man's pulled out of the earth, woman is fashioned out of man because woman is truly from inside man. Because in the original Genesis 1, he created them male and female, created he them. Then in Genesis 2, we get the individual story of it, which means that the male and the female was inside of the man that he creates. And so the human family is inside of Adam, and then God separates those genders in Genesis chapter 2. And this is the Hebrews' way of trying to understand where woman come from. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And there's probably some pretty good theology in the fact that she's not taken out of your foot, so you're not over, and she's not taken out of your head. So she's not a... There's probably some pretty good allegory there. I mean, granted, the rib is under the wing. It is under the arm. It is a place you protect, and it's a part of what protects your vitals. I mean, your heart is literally guarded by your ribcage. Your lungs are guarded by your ribcage. And so it's probably your most important set of bones in regards to keeping you alive. Um, So 
there's something to be said there for that sort of union. Flesh of my flesh, we're going to call her woman because she was taken out of man, therefore, or as Paul will say in Ephesians 5, for this reason. So he's just quoting this right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Which is an interesting split because we had one man put to sleep and out of him comes a woman, two fleshes. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and he joins to his wife and they become one flesh. So Genesis takes you through the creation account of of woman and then spiritually reverses it and says that once you get married, it's as if Eve goes back inside of Adam. That's one flesh. So Adam, Eve, men, women, man gets married, back together, one flesh. But we know, we know we become one flesh. And so... What do we do with this? Okay. And the next. Here's Paul's next line. This is a great mystery. I like that he admits it. I mean, and he's never been, Paul's never one to not admit that stuff's deep or difficult or over his head. I mean, he's a smart man and he's probably the most brilliant scholar of his day in regards to Torah, or at least one of them. But he admits this. The, the word, that word great in the Greek is actually mega, from which we get the English phrase mega as in super large. Paul goes, this is a mega mystery. This isn't just a mystery. This is like the mystery of mysteries. And then this is the line right here that convinces me we've messed up the interpretation. It's a mega mystery that this and this go back to one flesh, and yet I'm looking at husbands and wives that are two different people. It's a great mystery. What did God mean when he said they too shall become one flesh. My conclusion is that it's actually talking about Christ and his church, not Owen Amber. That what Genesis is doing is giving you one of, it's giving you the first biblical prophecy of the church. It is God pulls out of Adam, new creation, a being that looks like, moves like, that creation. And then when they are joined together, they actually are the same creation because they fit like a hand in a glove. That rib fits right into that rib cage for allegorical purposes. And so Paul goes, that's actually Christ and his church. It's not men and women. This is the verse that tells us Ephesians 5 was never supposed to be about natural marriage. It was supposed to be about spiritual marriage between Christ and the bride of Christ. Let's deal with mystery for just a second. Mystery is a Greek word mysterion. It literally is translated secret rites or doctrine, which is kind of interesting because that's kind of Paul going, there's a mega doctrine of one flesh. But in reality, that mega doctrine, that mega secret rite is Christ and his church. Uh, great theologian Richard Rohr said, I like this quote, mystery is not something that is hidden as much as it is revealed. And man, that's true in the New Testament when Paul says, the mystery that's been shut up from the ages but hath been revealed to us through the Gentiles is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not a mystery you can't understand. It's a mystery you're meant to understand that is supposed to be unveiled to you and revealed to you as you walk in grace. And so you start to realize that Christ is in me. 
So if a mystery is not something hidden as much as it's revealed, then the mystery of the marriage of one flesh is supposed to be an ongoing revelation of the love that Christ has for his church, of the union that we have together. I thought this was interesting. The Latin Vulgate actually translates mysterion in two different words, mysterium and sacramentum. Now, mysterium ends up becoming mystery, obviously. Sacramentum ends up becoming, for the most part, sacraments, a word that the Protestant church kind of leaves alone, but the Catholic and the Orthodox church hold very dear. And we should probably take notes when it comes to holding sacraments dear. Um, For this reason, if if no other reason, in the Roman Empire... Sacramentum referred to a soldier's oath of allegiance. So the ancient church, which translates the Greek into the Latin Vulgate, so they're using mysterion in two ways. They're using it as mysterium and they're using it as sacramentum. But they marry it in a very interesting way. The ancient church brought them together. Your Christianity was actually the swearing of allegiance to Christ as your king, and you entered into the mysteries of what it meant to live for him through water baptism. So they, they literally saw... They really believed in Christianity as a mystery that was sealed with a sacrament or an oath of allegiance. And this is why, um, and this has gotten me in trouble before, but this is why we should be very careful about oaths of allegiance as followers of Christ. Because truthfully, there's only one sacrament, sacramentum for us, only one oath of allegiance, and that is to Christ. Everything else... um, just depends on how many things you think you can be an oath to at the same time. Okay. Um, with all of that in mind, Ephesians 5.32. See it one more time. It's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. We really, um, this, is, this is it. This is landing. The next couple thoughts. I, I think that if... All that we have in Christianity, I don't want to make an accusation, so I can really only say this about me. If what we have is information, we will really only be so transformed. As much as we're up here giving information week after week after week, what we really are aiming for is the kind of information that leads to revelation. Because information doesn't really transform us. It just informs us. Okay? I do have sort of a, a growing fear as I hit middle age about the church of my future, the church world of the future. I didn't care so much about it when I was younger because you're, like, you're going to live forever and you don't give a rip and you're just doing your thing and you're just trying to build your ministry, build your church and you know, who cares? You know, I'm right anyway because when you're in your 20s, you're right about everything. Uh, at least I was. I was right about everything until I realized I was right about very little, which was super depressing. <laughs> so now I've come to grips with that I don't know much. It's way easier to be at grips with not knowing much. But I do have this underlying fear of the church of my future and that is that we are a church full of information that hasn't had much revelation. Mm-hmm. That we're going to have whole church full of people who, who know some verses and they know some platitudes and some principles and they got a bunch of songs in their heart. They're really good at singing and dancing and quoting Bible verses and bumper sticker theology. Mm-hmm. They haven't had a revelation of the risen Christ. 
And that risen Christ is not fundamental to their worship, to their preaching, to their music, to their lessons, to their Bible study, to their prayer. And that what happens in that very, very slowly is the sanctity, the sacramentum, the sacramental version of our Christianity slowly starts to erode as the waves of culture hit us. That not much is sanctified anymore. Not much is different. To where eventually inside the church looks just like the inside of anything else. To where the lives are pretty much like everything else. We just have this info that makes us better. Like we know a bunch of stuff those heathens don't know. And I, my, I fear that future because I don't want to be in that church. I mean, I've been a Rotary Club member back in Missouri when I worked in a bank and you had to join a civic group. And I remember going every week to Rotary Club and being struck about three months in of how much it was like the church that I was seeing. That it was food, sang a song, said some oaths, read the minutes, talked about our history, come up with a charitable project. And I went away and went, it's just a head full of all the right things. Nobody's been transformed in Rotary. It's not like changing your life. It's not like turning you into a new person. It just give you a different mentality, and it's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, great things come out of people doing great things for other people. Not against it. But it's not my faith. It's not Christianity. And so I do pray that I'm wrong, but I know that I'm not. And that's what really scares me. Because I know that we are on a road of intellectualism over revelation. That where there is little sacred and we are less sacramental all of the time in our faith. And the problem might be in that we don't, without a revelation of who Christ is, I, don't, I think we're just sort of teaching on deaf ears when it comes to Christ and His church kind of stuff. Because if we have a low view of marriage in our society, we're going to have a low view of Christian, we're going to have a low view of marriage between Christ and His body, and a low view of ourselves. What's the solution? Well, I know the solutions are returned to the cross, but not to the cross as a place of judicial punishment. We got to get rid of this. This idea that you need to come to the cross because Jesus, Jesus was punished for your sins. And then the cross just becomes the, it becomes the physical representation of a court decision. And so then the cross becomes judicial and court cases are final and you've already won. And that's kind of what we've done. You've already won. So now go be a winner. But you're sick inside. And there's stuff that needs healed. And there's junk that needs his hand. When Paul presents Christ as the husband over the church, he, does, he has the husband doing stuff that no husband in his day would do. That's part of the shock value. But it's also meant to show that what Christ does over his bride is he cleans her off. He nourishes her. He cherishes her. He loves her as his own body. He thinks of her every time he thinks of himself. And if that's the Christ we fell in love with and we saw, it wouldn't be so much about getting enough information. It would be about having a revelation of that Christ. That Jesus would consume our thoughts. 
So let's reverse engineer the, the Genesis 2. Pull Adam out of the ground, breathe life into him. Giraffes and rhinoceros, I will not give him a help me. So we'll go to sleep, pull a rib out. Ah, at last, there she is, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. The two become one flesh. So at Calvary, at the cross, Jesus leaves the glory of his father. He commits his mother to the beloved disciple. Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Having left father and mother, Jesus can cleave to his wife. The same wife that is pulled out of his side. So at Calvary, where blood and water come out of the spear-pierced side of Jesus, the church washed in the blood and continuously washed in the water of the word is pulled out of a brand new Adam, a new Christ at Calvary. When he leaves father and mother and cleaves to his bride, the two become one flesh so that now the flesh of the church is the body of Christ. So that Christ is the church in all of our iterations so that the expression of Christ to the world Paul says, mega mystery, couldn't understand it. My conclusion is it must be Jesus and us. Because it's not you and your wife, but you are the only body he has. And you're growing into the head. And this whole book has been, I'll give you a five-fold ministry to help bring the saints up into the, the ability to hold the head. So all you're really trying to do is develop the body through the gifts, develop the body through the church disciplines, develop the body through knowing you're loved and knowing who you are, and all of these things so that we can support the head. But at the end of the day, it's the head that supports us. It's the head that defines who we are, but we are his hands. We are his feet. We are his outreach. We are his flesh. So Paul's conclusion is when the two become one flesh, he really is talking about Christ and his church, which lands Paul on the final verse of Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, okay, in light of the fact that the mystery is not really you and your wife, the mystery is Christ and his wife, in spite of that, nevertheless, still got some advice for you. Let each one of you in particular. Ah, in particular means I haven't been talking to you in particulars yet. I've been talking to you as a corporate body. This whole thing's been about the body. Christ is the head and the body is the bride. But you in part, you want a marriage seminar? You got one verse. Particular husbands and particular wives. Love your wife as yourself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's what I got for you. Can't explain the one flesh stuff without saying that's got to be Christ and his church. So what I will say is, husbands, this is going to blow your minds. Love your wives the way you love yourself, because in your culture, you don't have to do that. Wives, this is going to blow your minds. Respect your husband, because you don't have to do that either. And so at the end of the day, he asks them both to do what they don't have to do, but what they would both naturally do if they got the other thing from each other. So that if I got loved, I'd give respect. If I got respect, I'd give love. And so... Why? Because that's the reciprocal cycle of the church with Christ is as we know we're loved, we give love in return. If we don't know we're loved, we probably don't give it. If we don't know we're loved, it's not because he's messing it up. It's not because he's not telling us he loves us. This is where we get involved and we have intermediaries and this is why the gospel is important. And it's why we got to continue to 
show a loving Christ because we are that voice that lets people know what he thinks about them. But I, 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 I also believe very much that because we are the body, it isn't about just knowing. It is about having revealed to us the love of God. I'm praying a revelation, a, a revival of the revelation of the resurrected Christ to, to the church. I can't pray. I can't be a... I can't worry so much about it for the church at large, but whatever I am a part of or whatever I touch, I want to see transformed lives, not because we have shoved info in them. I love teaching. It's, it's the passion of my life, but I also can fall in love with information. Like I can fall in love with who I got something good. They're going to like this. And I know that that only lasts so long because then you just forget everything anyway. But when it's a revelation of who Christ is and he becomes your husband, your flesh, then it, it's more than information. And that's what I'm praying for me. That's what I'm praying for you. It's what I'm praying for you. I still don't know that we, get a, we got a great definition. It's still a mega mystery. How does it become one flesh? That's growing on me. That's been growing on me for a few years. What does it mean to be the flesh of Jesus. I don't know, but I think it probably should be taken serious. If we believe it, it should be taken serious for whatever that is worth. Let's pray. You are good, Father. Thank you for, thank you for the revelation of love that you give us through Jesus. The more we look at Jesus, the more we understand you. The less we look at Jesus, the more distanced we are from you. So teach us all over again how to look at Jesus. And may we see him as Paul saw him in Ephesians 5, as the husband over his bride, the church. And as we do that, we, we know we're going to be washed off with the water of the word. We know we're going to be nourished. We know we're going to be cherished. We know we're going to be loved. And Father, each of us in particular then, love our spouse and respect our spouse as a reflection of Christ and his church. Father, I, don't, I love information. And I'm not going to lie and say, I don't want information. I just want revelation. The truth is I love information I just want it to be the kind that leads to re absolute revelation of Christ and a reformation of soul. And we're praying that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.